You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. I'm honoured to uh, MC or moderate this panel today. Uh, I think it's, as Tracy said, it's a overdue conversation. One that we've been trying to tell you for 250 years. Um, but yeah, we're at, a, we're at crisis point and people are starting to listen. So to have people like the ones before you is a real privilege and honour because we are all survivors of mass genocide in this country that happened to our people and that continues to happen to our people in the most sophisticated way. I'd like to first introduce Jackie Katona. Jackie is, um, she's more than a warrior. She's more than a mentor in my life. She's another mum to me and the fight that she's had on her country um, and winning that, that fight, Jabaluka, is incredible. And I'm just honoured to, to be a part of her journey and and hope she feels the same about mine. I know that I ring Jackie quite often about some of the, the struggles that we face as black women. You know, climate is one thing, environment's another but there are so many injustices against us every single day. And if it wasn't for people like Jackie to just share that load and debrief about which priority do we fight today, we'd be in a lot of trouble. So without further ado, I'd like to um, introduce Jackie Katona, a job woman and a proud warrior of her people. It's an honour to share the stage with other soldiers in the struggle because our solidarity between Aboriginal people is really what sustains us. I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. <coughs> Their land unceded, without permission, stolen, stolen and then willfully extinguished, lawfully extinguished the rights of Aboriginal people. I think we have to point out where the sentiment has become hollow if we're going to have an honest conversation. We repeat at every opportunity a history which has given us a legacy of intergenerational strength to fight for justice. Welcome to the emergency. We've had generations of people living in an emergency situation. We need to seriously acknowledge the fundamental inequality that's between us. Even the radio promotion of an event like this talks about the establishment of a group of eminent persons who might dare to lead Australia into a new political future. No mention of the role of Aboriginal people. No centrality for Aboriginal people to address what we face as a result of climate change. 
we continue to live in precarious circumstances. And it won't change unless there is an awakening and a commitment to climate justice for our communities. Our land and us both have been enslaved for progress. We have only ever enjoyed the crumbs of social justice concessions. Not justice, concessions. Progress by proxy, merely by being located in the vicinity of the wealth that's created using our land. There is and has been no ethical response to the vulnerability experienced in our communities. And I can convey to you some lessons that were very hard learned in the national campaign where we Mirar traditional owners in Kakadu National Park were supported by 75% of the population to stop Jabaluka mine. There was still a competition that was identified, a political competition, that Aboriginal people might get the edge on environmental justice. We are still just over 2% of the population. We are still living precarious lives. Our rights and obligations that arise from who we are and our connection to land are ignored by successive governments. If that doesn't change, if the colonial project is perpetuated, then there can be no climate justice. Otherwise, it's business as usual. Climate justice by proxy. The continuation of our dependence as Aboriginal people on the poor decisions of governments voting in. The only outcomes for us remain dependent on a society that treats us as invisible. Social justice by proxy hasn't worked and neither will climate justice by proxy. You must contribute to our independence your society is killing us. Can you hear me? Yes. Act ethically. Understand that climate ethics can harm, do harm, us Aboriginal people, and they continue to exclude us. We have islands to the north which belong to the Torres Strait Islander people, who see what climate change is doing to their future. This is not a national priority. Climate justice must build the capacity of all those who have benefited from our exclusion. It must build our independence to engage as equals in society. We will have a future together. But will you change history? Or will you again risk our survival without climate justice? Thank you, Jackie. Um, I hope everyone was listening. Uh, certainly some takeaways from that discussion. Um, and that's something that we've been calling for for a long time, as I said earlier. 
So already there's a takeaway and I hope each and every one of you takes that with you and does something with it. Uh, next we have Professor Tony Birch, who is also a longer person, man, warrior, um, and an all-round deadly follower. Tony. So um, I also, of course, want to pay my respect to both the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong people and to also recognise their struggle for ecological justice, which has been a struggle since the first arrival of Europeans on country. Um, for anyone confused, I am a Belonga man as of Tuesday. Um, the High Court decision to state that Aboriginal people are neither citizens nor aliens created a new category saying we are Belongas. Um, this is not a joke, it's true, it was in the judgment. So I am um, Belonga Longa, and one of my elders, Gary Foley, is Belonga Longa, much longer. Um, and for non-Aboriginal people, unfortunately, it's never Belonga a Belonga. Okay. And it goes on, as it were. We're getting a website developed as I speak, right? Um, okay. One of, what I wanted to talk about it, at the introduction was really to um, talk about what I see as the, the real problem of an understanding of Aboriginal sovereignty and authority and notions of Indigenous knowledge that have come out of discussion um, because of the, this terrible summer that we've experienced. Now, there's no doubt that it's been a, a catastrophic summer for many people, but as Jackie's already alluded to, this is not an emergency or a crisis that's new to Aboriginal people. Um, that's an important point that's already been made. But the other contradiction, I think, and complexity that come out of this is there has been some willingness of people in the media, some politicians and science, to say, well, in fact, yes, we do need to listen to Aboriginal people. Yes, we do need to learn from Aboriginal people. And the area that they have concentrated on quite specifically is the understanding of Aboriginal cultural and scientific knowledge around fire management. Now, that all seems well and good, but it exemplifies the problem in that you might say, well, there's a specific aspect of Aboriginal scientific and cultural knowledge that we want to exploit or value, but this is often done at the exclusion of a holistic understanding of how that fire management technology fits into a wider aspect of Aboriginal life. So one of the things we should ask our politicians, how is it, how is it that we might consider that we value or we wish to value and include discussions of fire management technology, but yet, with the Commonwealth support and with Labor Party support, we are fracking gas in the Northern Territory. We are doing that on Aboriginal sacred land, where Aboriginal women, custodians, senior Aboriginal women, are saying scientifically and culturally, this is destructive to place. So, on the one hand, we can value or exploit or cherry pick your knowledge, but on the other hand, we continue not only to ignore it, but abuse the country that's supported by it. We've seen this in a relationship to the Murray-Darling system. And if you look at the alliances between Aboriginal groups along that whole system, from Queensland going right into the Coorong on Narangeri country, for decades and decades, Aboriginal people again have been talking about the scientific, cultural and spiritual need to protect that river. And as we know, that river has been vandalised, it's been desecrated and it's still being desecrated because vested interests regard irrigation for short-term agricultural gain as being more vital than those systems of knowledge. So again, it's an abuse of our knowledge systems that you don't really hold to have any value if you only exploit one aspect of it at your convenience or when you're in crisis. And the third aspect of this that would really come home to people here in Victoria is the desecration of forests in Aboriginal country in Victoria, in places like country where Lydia is from, where at the same time again we're talking about how we might value the ecology different and we're destroying it with such violence. The other thing that I want to say at the introduction that is so obvious if we look at how this current discussion is taking place, it's 
even if we're talking about fire technology, even if we're talking about other ways of managing culturally, scientifically, and spiritually, where are the voices of Aboriginal women? Largely, they're absent. Largely, Aboriginal women have vital roles as senior custodial roles on country. As has happened since we had European occupation of country where white men talk to particular Aboriginal men, is that where is the knowledge of those women and why is that knowledge being ignored and why is that knowledge not being given the authority that we require? Now, we understand this fundamentally here in Victoria because we know were it not for Aboriginal women, we would have sacred trees in the Western District of Victoria, in the Western side of the state, that would now be destroyed if not for those women protecting those sites. Yeah. And we need, we, need, we need those women to be recognised and we need not, not to walk with them but walk behind them because they will be the ones who will protect us most of all. And the last thing I want to say is to think again, not to think about what do we do tomorrow about climate justice? We know that it is an emergency, we get that. But if we look at every problem as just the problem that occurred yesterday or last summer or last month, we will not get out of this. We need both immediate strategies to deal with this, but we need long-term strategies. We need long-term philosophical change. And I would ask you to think about holistic change. Now, when I know people here, our Aboriginal people who are fighting for country, they're the same people who will fight for social justice. They're the same people who will fight for decent housing. They're the same people who will fight for the voice of Aboriginal people. So I live in that classic um, world of the latte sipping inner city of Melbourne, but at least I can claim I was born there in 1957. In my suburb, I live in Carlton, I was born in Carlton. My suburb is as liberal as you can get, as supportive of climate change strategies as you can get. So I'm surrounded by professionals who recycle, ride bikes, do all that stuff, trim their beards, everything. <laughs> Why is it? Why is it that several years ago, when the state government wanted to build a new public housing estate in my area, that those some people were the most voracious in having that estate stop? Why did those people not want to have poorer people living next door to them? If you don't have an idea and a commitment to social justice don't have an idea and commitment to climate justice because it's a selfish commitment. It's not an altruistic commitment. survived. We're still here. 
inspired tactics that have been beset upon an outcome that was for anything but for us to still be here on these sacred lands that was given a name for the people that gave it its name even landed here. See, 1788, as we know, they came upon this land, washed into the bay, stepped upon sacred sands, didn't recognize there was governance at hand, laws and conditions not based upon demands. Tribes, clans, and families alarm with sacred chants, song lines, stories, blessing woman, child, and man. Stars, constellations, formulating plants, bountiful plains of medicinal plants. Spells beyond the physical beat and our dance, none of this dreaming unfolded by chance. But they didn't see this majesty right before their eyes. They were just the savages and plotted our demise. Took our star formation to represent their plot. Not realizing our choices has brought it through those nights. Busy painting laws to sidestep our rights, deny our very ways to be were out of sight, out of mind. Spotted laws this landscape never defined in the previous 60,000 plus years of time. That said, Australia still a scene of crime where they push aside the matters and it's blind leading the blind.
time to reflect on those words that that Neil puts so so beautifully. Just hearing um, everyone talk about how our people have been ignored for so long and the continued injustice that our people face each and every day. Um, I want to put it to to you all, you know, and one thing that I get asked a, a lot every day from white followers is what can we do? What can we do to help? Which isn't always the best question to ask. But um, what is your response to that? Because I know that you know, there are a lot of good people out there, a lot of our allyship is growing and people do want to do the right thing. Um, but what, what's your advice if you ask that question? Well, there was a famous Aboriginal scholar called Lila Watson who once said, if you've come to help me, you should leave because you're of no use. But if you're here because your liberation is bound up in mine, then we can work together. Yeah, that, that was very good. Um, <laughs> look, while, while Neil was up, I was, um, there are a couple of things I, I, I want to say, and one is that for us, for us, there is a really important issue of generational change, so that I think, you know, people like Neil, the wonderful young people of war, the um, Indigenous climate activists in sea, we have a remarkable generation, a generation of Aboriginal young people coming through who are really going to lead this struggle and are going to lead this challenge around climate. Um, if you think of the life expectancy of Aboriginal people, I'm already ancient. Um, and generational change is vital for us. So what you will need to do, of course, is work with and, and listen and give respect to these young people who are incredibly generous and very open, I think, to, to engaging. So if they're going to be so generous and open towards you, it's vital to reciprocate that generosity. I live with the contradiction and the complexity of both urgency and patience, and I've written a lot about this, that I'm not suggesting there aren't things that have to be done yesterday. We know that there are communities in the Torres Strait all over the Pacific, um, in the Northern Hemisphere, um, indigenous communities losing country right now, losing their sacred graves of their ancestors, losing the farming plots that they've, they've worked for thousands of years. It's just shocking. So something needs to be done about that now. But again, my, my own view is that nothing we do is of long-term change unless we have a long-term philosophical metaphysical change in who we are as, as people, and that's all people. And to be very personal about it, to, to highlight the complexity, as a couple of people in row about seven here will know, I can talk under wet cement, and I talk a lot, and I get invited to talk a lot. My decision is, in fact, that I've decided to stop talking so much, and I'm, I'm leaving my university in June so that I talk a lot less and I reflect a lot more, and that's why I'll be relying on people like Neil, because I've found that at the age of 63 I, I know nothing, and that I'll learn a lot more about myself and country by doing a lot more walking and thinking on country. Now, that's not a great solution towards action in one sense, but so what I would ask people is to you know, have two minds to think with, or two sides of your brain, one that is ready to confront um, the ravages of capital, to confront those who would deny climate change, those who would inhibit us from working together, and that includes you know, to put your bodies on the line, to be on the front foot about these issues, and then to think about long-term educational and philosophical change. And one of the things that I've always thought is what we need is um, properly funded Aboriginal knowledge centres. And I'm going to mean properly funded where people aren't volunteers, where people with the knowledge are, are paid as intellectual leaders, where we can facilitate proper education strategies that would invite non-Aboriginal people 
to those. So we know now a young are here today, many of you probably went to school here probably didn't know Aboriginal history. You're engaged with Aboriginal intellectual leaders is probably negligible and for that you're not responsible. Those who are responsible for that who put these systems in place. So until you get the ability to work with Aboriginal people and learn from Aboriginal people in a teaching environment, it's very difficult. Now, when I say I don't even know much, well, clearly those who have never had access to Aboriginal people know much less than that. So I would urge people to, to join with us to, to make sure that Aboriginal authority and autonomy is recognised. And as I said when I was standing up, so much in my life I've learned from Aboriginal women who are faceless, voiceless, but the great community grassroots activists who lead our community, and they're very humble women, so they're not asking necessarily for a platform, but if we don't find ways to learn from those women, it's, it's like missing out on such a central plank of your knowledge system. So these knowledges, these stories, this is what I think needs to happen in the future. So not young fellows like Neil, who, who have a better understanding of their place, old fellows like me to, to say less and to listen a lot more.
you know, we as Aboriginal people work in a holistic sense. You can't just work one way, you've got to work the whole way. And that includes, you know, the injustice of stealing our children each and every day. Today we've got a bunch of grandmothers against removals heading to Bairnsdale to stop some removals from happening because we had a, a young mum commit suicide from DHS taking her children. Yesterday we had a man who's in prison, who's fourth stage cancer, who is in there for stealing some chips from McDonald's. He's been in there for 12 months. So that's the everyday injustice that we deal with. And when you don't see blackfellas rocking up to a rally on climate or a blockade to protect the Central Highlands, you know where they are. That's the injustice that continues every day for my people. And that's usually where the women are because it's the women who get called upon to do the work. So it's really important that people understand the holistic approach to climate justice and social justice. I'm going to uh, now throw it open to the audience uh, to ask our deadly panel of Defenders, land defenders, warriors. We have so many hats. <laughs> geniuses, professors, <laughs> stable geniuses. So, so is there anybody who would like to uh, go first? We have a roving mic, so just raise your hand. Do I have to switch this off? Can I just speak to it? Um, I'm a little bit um, scared to say anything in front of such eminent people. Uh, nevertheless, I guess two things spring to mind. Um, one is, um, oh, maybe I should introduce myself. My name's Arno, um, and I'd like to pay my respects to Delvin's past present. Um, look, I, I was really uh, inspired by the Welcome to Country this morning. Um, and one of the things that was said then was that we're all Indigenous and I find that in some ways a bit confronting and at the same time liberating. So, um, so I was wondering whether the panel might like to respond to that idea. Um, and the idea that we're all Indigenous. Um, and then, uh, in very practical ways, um, what do you think we white fellas can be doing to advance <laughs> reconciliation in our everyday lives? I believe the word indigenous means, you know, born of that particular area. So I dare say it's a, um, a sentiment being expressed, which is one that is inclusive. I think you'll notice there's a strong theme amongst Aboriginal people to be inclusive. Because the connection and the quality of relationships between people are at the base of our cultural lives, our political lives, our economic lives. And I hear over and over again traditional owners so generous with their sentiment to include everybody in the future of this nation if only they would stop marginalising us. 
if only they wouldn't tokenise that sentiment. And I think that's a point that people should reflect on. I think reflecting can be challenging and hard work. And I think educating yourself on these issues can be hard work. It's not a secret that child removal has been an ongoing public policy. It's not a secret that state governments extinguish title, preventing Aboriginal people from owning land. These are not secrets, but they're not regarded really as that important. When in fact, that's the way you describe the limits, the constraints, the jackboot on our throats. And we have to get up every day and find a way to help our community, not just to get through it, but to have a future. <coughs> I've been asking people for 25 years, please educate yourselves. These people like Tony, Gary Foley, Lydia's mother, Marge, Marge's brothers, Marge's mother. Ever since people didn't have to live in segregated communities, Aboriginal people have been trying to educate the broader community about injustice. And it's getting to the point where it seems that injustice is just one of the areas of discomfort in our country. Nothing that we have to act on, nothing that we have to vote on. You could pass a law in federal parliament and that's social justice by proxy. Let's have constitutional recognition. justice by proxy. <laughs> you do all the doing somewhere else and nothing changes at the local level. You have to work shoulder to shoulder with the Aboriginal community. You have to tear down your constitution because we will not have a future if you continue to support it. Um, yeah, I, I can go on about the problems of constitutional recognition, but, but I won't. Um, the word reconciliation, I'll just touch on that because it can be both, again, an incredibly hollow gesture and meaningful, and it's only meaningful in practice, in action. So it's nothing, it can't be achieved for anything other than direct action and interaction with people. This morning I was walking through the Carlton Flats and I was in a hurry. And I was stopped by who I subsequently found out was a, a Somalian great-grandmother. And she was lost. Last night she was in hospital. She got out of hospital this morning. And she said to me, I've just got out of the hospital, I'm, I'm confused. She was from North Melbourne, she'd come on a bus and she's amongst these towers and she'd forgotten where her daughter lived and had forgotten what number flat she was in. And she was very hesitant to stop me because she probably saw a white fella coming down through the flats with tattoos and maybe thought this is the sort of person who might have abused me in the past. But she stopped me nonetheless, so she decided to take a chance. I was in a hurry, and I thought, oh God. And I, I stopped and talked to her, and then I realized I found out the number of the block, and I said, okay, we'll go and find the block. Then when we started walking, I realized that she may have been in hospital for a bad leg, because she was walking very, very slowly. 
and I'm in a hurry. And I can't leave him now. I said, okay, so then we eventually get to the block of flats, having found out she has four daughters and a son, as I do. She has 10 grandchildren, I have only two. She's been in Australia for 25 years and has been back to Somalia twice. And when she said I had, when I said I had four daughters, she said, you're a strong man. I don't know why that works that way. But that <laughs> then we got to the back of flights. I said, what flight number is it? She said, I don't know. I can't remember. There's 200 flights in the block. And there's a bus system. I said, do you know what numbers are in it? She said, yeah, there's a one and a seven. So I pressed flight 17 and no one answered. And then I pressed flight 71. And then someone answered the phone, said hello, and the great-grandma said, ah, and it was her daughter. And she spoke into the intercom and the door opened and I opened the door and I thought she was gonna go and then she stopped. And she put her hand on my shoulder again and thanked me. That was the end of the interaction. Now I didn't walk back home full of myself, aren't I a great boy scout? I thought, why did she stop me when she was probably hesitant and what did that relationship mean? So when we think about the potential of reconciliation, it's about that decision. Do you turn to people or turn away? And when you turn to people, mine was just, I'm going to be late. But sometimes when you have to introduce yourself to or engage with an Aboriginal person, we're both dealing with 250 years of violence and conflict. So we carry a lot of baggage. And those initial interactions can be tense. They can be quite abrasive, but they're the interactions we need to work through. Because if we're committed to change, coming out the other side of those interactions is remarkably uplifting. And you talk, as Jackie talked about education, Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people, either as individuals or communities, have genuinely said this is a long-term relationship, not a short-term one, not a carpet bagger riding into town, not an activist coming in for one day and going, but sticking to the relationship, the benefits are remarkable. And all the Aboriginal people on this stage and the older activists that Jackie mentioned, every one of them will talk about long-term non-Aboriginal friends and comrades because they went through that process of turning to each other. So the question about reconciliation, it's about a long-term commitment to each other. It's not about a government brochure or a capital R, it's about genuine social interaction and mutual respect.
But one thing that I want to leave you with is one of the things that was really diminished in relation to Indigenous people at the hands of the Colonial Project and has continued to is the trust in First Nations peoples. The trust that, as Jackie said, we are an inclusive people and that the paths that we will devise if we're given autonomous abilities back on our lands in some shape or form, even in a small capacity. If there is a trust there, there is an inclusiveness that will occur, and that means for the survival of all. was too racist to reconcile. And the priority 20 years ago was never constitutional recognition, it was treaty. And it wasn't treaty within states and territories because they, they're not treaties. They're administrative processes and calling it self-determination as long as they have control. We were, we were talking about a treaty that for the, for the nation that rewrites the constitution, but is also internationally scrutinised. That's what we were talking about 20 years ago. So it's taken 20 years for them to twist and turn and come up with this notion of putting us into a constitution which is part of the colonial project, which we never agreed to in the first place. So we've got a panel of uh, vote no to constitutional recognition here, um, not something that um, we'd ever support until we settle this country once and for all and, and talk about an internationally scrutinised treaty, which could also play into the climate space, where we could say we could negotiate the closure of coal and the, the stopping of fracking and the, you know, the eco side that continues in our country. That's what I'd like to see in a treaty as a traditional owner. So I've got a few hands up over here and we have to finish in 13 minutes. So if we could just keep short, thanks. Hi, I'm Sarah, and thank you so much for all these wonderful ideas. Um, I'm, hopefully this doesn't come out dull because I've been trying to listen and also come up with a cogent um, question. Um, uh, leading on from that idea of inclusiveness, and I have seen this a lot um, down in Hobart and also in Melbourne, particularly going to a lot of rallies. Uh, time and time again, I see First Nations people turning up to um, rallies for all sorts of different social and environmental causes, you know, free West Papua, climate, you name it. Um, and the way I see it personally is that, you know, climate justice is Indigenous justice, Indigenous justice is refugee justice, LGBTI, etc. It's all the same thing, it's all based on respect, all these things that you've been talking about. Um, when I try to talk to other people about that notion and because it would be great to see everybody coming along to all of these events, not just picking their own personal hobby horse. People say to me, well, well, I can't come to everything. You know, I've got to have something to, you know, focus on, that sort of thing. Um, people talk about compassion fatigue and that sort of stuff as well. Um, I hope I'm making sense. Um, but, so what's, what is the, what are your thoughts on that? And is that, is, am I even asking the right question with that? Like, how do you bring people along with that sort of 
um, idea and, you know, or is there a different way of, of looking at it? Thank you. Okay, through the chair. <laughs> I used to go to conferences when I was learning the ropes, when my elders showed me the pathway to advocacy. You can, you can take action at this conference. You are in a room full of like-minded people. You can form a climate justice network that is founded on principles of justice for Aboriginal communities that operate in local communities with real people dealing with relevant issues that everybody deals with every day. Don't ask me a question that tells me or implies that you are powerless. That's why this has been convened. And we are here to tell you and to encourage you, take action for justice. Our relationship to the land is ancient. Our connection has been tokenized by your society. We've done everything in our power to try and change that. And we want you to take action now. When an auntie speaks, you listen and you don't give the microphone to anybody else.
you know, whether you call it sweat equity or whatever, is that you could certainly give something of value to that community by working with them. And I know that a lot of Aboriginal um, land groups actually really welcome that involvement. Jackie just said Victoria University has a course. Uh, there's also a Pay the Rent campaign which is about um, activating activists, black activists and black campaigners. Um, the first sovereign hub will be set up uh, in Melbourne in what they call the Green Building. We're about to change that to the Black and Green Building in Carlton. Um, and the Australian Conservation Foundation are paying the rent by giving us a free space so that we can organise and be part of this conversation. Um, we have time for one more question. If all Australians were to wholeheartedly listen to Indigenous people, how would that change not only how we treat the environment, but our political systems and economic systems and all the systems that are, oppress us? It has to change everything. It has to place Aboriginal power at the centre of our future. There isn't a competition. It doesn't mean that one prevails over another. It is a collaboration. And it is a generous collaboration. Don't think that we come to this discussion resourced. We struggle to maintain employment. We have to achieve educational qualifications to be accepted. We are never accepted on our own terms. There must be a preparedness locally, personally. You must become better informed. It's been too long to use the excuse, why didn't we know? You have a responsibility in this. And we're waiting. Did we get to talk this time? <laughs> um, well, two things. I, one, I'd sell more books. Um, so in this world, people see recognise that knowledge. I said, I'll let Tony Birch not all the white girl, I have to get that because, you know, so I'd say more books would be the first thing. The second, the second important thing, it's really simple. It is really simple. I know Aboriginal kids with little formal education who have gone through the brutal systems that Lydia has talked about of being taken from family, spending years in institutions, and yet, if I went and spoke to one of those teenage kids out at West Heidelberg in the House of Commission or somewhere else and said to those kids, is country important to you? They know, yes, inherently it is. If I said to them, should we desecrate country by digging a hole in the ground to extract a fossil fuel? They know inherently it is wrong because despite all the, all the lack of what they've had and what they've suffered, they understand where they sit in relationship to country. So if we were ever to get to a place where that occurred, we wouldn't have to try and convince people that these things are wrong. We wouldn't need to have a campaign that says, hey, we think it's a bad idea to put a drill for oil into the Great Australian Bight and hope that we don't have an industrial accident in the future. Because we wouldn't make the decision based on a future industrial accident we would say to do that is to desecrate that seabed, to do that is to desecrate the life of those marine species, and to do that is to desecrate the relationship of Aboriginal people and sea country. We would know that as fact. So we wouldn't have to turn up at these rallies repeatedly. We wouldn't have to fight for country. We would be living with great respect for country. Now, will that ever happen? Probably not, but that is what we strive for to say, we don't, have to, we don't want to have to argue for the sacredness of country, we just want to 
you to know that that is a given. That is an inherent way of living, which is the way that all Aboriginal people know, regardless of what they've suffered and regardless of what education they've had. I'm going to be a bit cheeky in terms of your question. If everybody listened and got behind First Nations peoples, you would no longer identify as Australian. And in the long term, hopefully we would look back and, and nobody would. And Australia would no longer exist. And the hope would be that no other colonial nations would exist anymore because those foundations are built to destruct and until they're gone, destruction will continue and First Nations peoples will not truly be listened to. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.